So normally I don't ask people too much about their history, but yours is interesting. So briefly, I will. Um, you're neither from Burgundy nor from a winemaking family. So exactly. What happened? <laughs> well, yeah, I grew up, I grew up in the Loire Valley, uh, in Montlouis-sur-Loire to be precise. And, uh, I have those memories, you know, my dad was in finance. My mom worked for Pfizer, the, the labs. So not much wine involved here. Um, but I just have full memories being a kid and going down in the cellar with my dad to pick up the bottles for, you know, the Sunday lunch or Saturday dinner and trying to learn and remember every single label from the, my dad was more a bottle drinker. It has changed now, but at the time he was more a bottle drinker. And, uh, sorry, I need to turn that off. And, um, so anyways, and at some point I needed to decide what I was going to do. And I was fascinated with wine as a kid, but fascinated with the bottles and the cellar. And, and one day I was like 16, I decided to go, you know, yeah, when you are in school in France, you have offices where you can go check every job. If you have a dream job, you go there and they tell you how to get there. So I said, okay, I'm going to go there and check how to become an audience. And um, yeah, that's, but, that's but, how but, 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 but wait a minute. Originally, you wanted to like design cars or something. Yes, yes. That was, you know, when I was even younger. 13, 12. Yeah. Yes, okay. yeah, 10. Let's say 10. Okay. And um, so then I, uh, yeah, I said, no, it's going to be wine. And um, so I said, I want to become an enologist. And that, that became kind of my thing. I said, okay, I want to do that. How do I get there? How do I do that? And I uh, realized that, you know, there were only five universities in France where I could get that degree. Mm. The two most prestigious being Dijon and more especially Bordeaux. And there's also one in Reims in Champagne and one in Toulouse and one in Montpellier in the South. So I went for a first degree called the BTS, Viticulture Analogie, that I took in Tours. So where I grew up for two years, which is not the normal way to get to the Enology degree because they, they, they really look for people who have a more scientific background. But I wanted to have, I wanted to go pruning. I wanted to go see vineyards. I wanted to, that's why I went for a BTS. Can I, I'm going to interrupt you for a second because, um, yeah, you told me about that. I just want to talk about it for one second. So um, it's difficult to talk about you because you're, I mean, we met you, you were like 21 or something, but now you're 42. So, but at a very early age, we, we always thought, oh, David, he's incredibly mature for his age. He knows what he wants. But let's step back into that age for a second. Um, and you were accepted. So for everybody that doesn't know, to become an, actually an enologist with a degree in France, it's a it's pretty prestigious degree. It's an engineering degree. And so it's a prestigious school. It's hard to get in. There are limited places. There are limited universities, as David said. And even in order to get in, you have to do something between uh, basically high school and, um, and the engineering degree. And a, very often it's called a preparation, an école préparatoire. And you were accepted in Matsup, which is Matsup Bio, which is super prestigious. And one month before it started, you called up and gave up your seat in it. 
because you had the decided guys, the guys didn't understand why but uh, that's what i did but already at 17 you knew you decided i want to get my hands dirty i want to touch the stuff i want to touch the grapes i want to be with farmers yeah. and go to school with farmers because for me at the time wine was just what my parents would enjoy with you know uh, over the weekend and with good good meals and it, for me the, the making of the wine was something i had no idea about so for me just to say i wanted to be an enologist and going through the scientific path was not something interesting to me i want really to get my hands dirty and to learn real the, the real way and how you become a, a vigneron at the same time so that's that's why i went i turned down the the prepa and i said i'm going to do they asked me why i said i'm going to do a bts and they started laughing <laughs> and uh, said, well, yeah, that's my decision. Sorry, maybe it's less prestigious, but that's that's the way I want to do. And so that's that's how I started in studying uh, viticulture and enology. So that was for two years, in two. And then uh, my idea was to go to either Bordeaux or Dijon for enology. But when you come from a BTS background, it was not ideal. So I was not accepted at first. So I. Nevertheless, I went to the Dijon University and I took another degree called Licence des Sciences de la Vie. That sounds very pompous, but uh, that's what it was. Uh, so where, where it was great, I studied a lot about the plant itself, the vine and how a vine is growing. So it was all about viticulture. And then after that license, I got accepted in the, for the enology degree and then I ended up in Dijon. Who were you in school with? Anybody we know? Uh, you mean uh, back in two or wh wherever? Yeah, wherever. Um, anybody you know? Huh? Um, there was the, the son Grayou, Maxime Grayou, who was okay. you know, at the same time. Uh, there was, uh, I'm trying to think of domains that uh, you might work with. No, I don't, I don't see anyone that you might know actually. Okay. Okay, so you do the DNO, which takes how many years? Two years. Two years. So I did two years in two, one year of license of viticulture and two years of DNO. And you interned with? I interned with, uh, first of all, I interned um, back in Vouvray, in the small, small estate in Vouvray, when I started my DNO, Domaine Pascal de la Leu. 99 vintage, terrible vintage. I learned what Botrytis was, uh, <laughs> what it meant to make wine with Botrytis. And then my main internship for the DNO, where you really had to have a study, and it happened with Ben, Ben Leroux at Contarme. And um, well, Ben is, I mean, if I'm still in Burgundy today, I think it's uh, Ben uh, played a great role in, in that, obviously because he's not only he's, uh, inspired, but he's very inspiring as well. Uh, and so I, I had a great vintage 2000 at Claude Zepnoz then, and it was amazing. And I, I worked, my theme for the degree was that I was working on the different ages of the vines of the Claude Zepnoz in Pomar. Wow. So I did all sorts of studies, uh, phenolic ripeness, uh, all sorts of things that they ask you to do when you take that kind of degree. Uh, that was interesting. And then ben, ben was challenging me a bit when I was coming back to see him. I was about to finish my degree, to get my degree. And he said, so what are you doing? 
I said, well, after I get my degree, I might like, do like everybody else, go travel a bit, go to Bordeaux for six months, go to, so I was going to go to Bordeaux. I think I had a job in one of the, one of the estates that belonged to Le Chateau Angelus in Saint-Emilion. Uh, it's actually a friend of mine who took the job and got fired, so I'm glad I didn't go. Hmm. Uh, so, and Ben kept pushing me, he said, are you sure you want to go to Bordeaux or New Zealand or where? I said, yeah, I want to, I want to learn. I want to see different things. He said, oh, I might have something for you. So he was, he was teasing me the whole time because he, he didn't tell me at first. He said, oh, I might have something for you. I said, okay. I mean, I love Burgundy. I spent three years here, but tell me more. And that's how he introduced me to Becky. I can actually hear him say that because that's so Ben. Yeah, the teasing, the mysterious little... Yes. Yeah. So he, and then he introduced me to Becky, who introduced me to the Giroux family. And that's how I got, uh, ten, 10 days after I got my degree in Dijon, I started at Camille Giroux. So, I, uh, so, yeah, so basically the background is that Camille Giroux was sold to a group of American investors. Becky was managing it and she needed a technical director. And that's how she find you found you and you were 21, 22. I was uh, almost 23. Almost 23. So here you are, the two of you, <laughs> never having purchased grapes from uh, brokers or things like that. And you never. have the 2001 vintage and... and... And one day, and you know, we know because of the sale of Camille Giroux, the Camille Giroux brothers didn't vinify much 2001s. And, and anyway, we were not interested in, in, in these wines at the time. And Becky and I, at some point, we meet a broker. He said, oh, I might have something for you. So we started tasting samples and, you know, doing, doing the negotiant job, really, when you buy wine is to taste samples and make a decision, make a wish that it's going to work for you after with your own élevage, with your own approach. So... I remember we bought like Chambertin Claude Bez, Romain et Saint-Vivant, Chambertin, even some Moraché. I mean, back then it was... Bonne Malconsor, Corton Renard. Corton Renard, Bonne Malconsor. Back then it was almost easy to find these appellations. And it was, a, it was an amazing collection of wines actually that you guys bought. And yes. it was, we had, we still have some, a few of the O1s and unfortunately I think we're out of the Claude Bez, but... We still have Malconsor, Corton Bresson, and Roman et Saint-Vivant. They're pretty spectacular, by the way. Um, and so... The beginner's, the beginner's chance, is that how we say it? No, because the 2002s don't suck either, and what you did after. So 2002 was actually the first vintage you vinified partially. Well, al almost entirely by myself, because, you know, unfortunately, things didn't work out with Bernard and François Giroux, so they didn't really stay very long for the vintage and so I was by myself trying to you know uh, make the new Camille Giroux and uh, so yeah I remember that was uh, that was a challenge for me that was a challenge and so what at the time what did you vin actually you purchased a lot of grapes then starting in 2002 yes yes and you know the style of Camille Giroux was very clear yes. it was very Definite was very, I mean, they knew what they wanted to do. And I was like, am I going to do the same thing? Am I, what, what am I doing? So, and I, I remember tasting with Bernard and Francois Giroux and 
you know, for them, the structure was what was important. So I remember tasting with them one day and they didn't even smell the wines. I was like, you know, just coming out of enology school where they teach you every detail, you know, the first nose, blah, blah, blah. I was like surprised to say the least. Uh, they say they went, they went straight to, you know, the front palette and the back palette and the, the, the structure and, oh yeah, there's potential for 20 years here. That's great wine. So it was uh, an interesting experience. But uh, so obviously I learned from them and then I had to make my own choices since I was on my own pretty much, uh, you know, too. And uh, that's, that's how it started with Camille. <clears throat> and so you do O2, then you're hit with O3, which is Great Cray Vintage. And then at O4 and then O5. <laughs> but something else happens. Yes, I mean, uh, June 04, June 04, I host a group of, uh, from one of uh, Becky and Clive's Clive Code Symposium, a group of Americans mostly. And uh, it's a Friday morning, I remember. We're tasting O3s out of barrels. And um, I don't know, for some reason, the conversation ends up talking about vineyards for sale in Burgundy because we were just offered at Camille a domain for sale in Beaune for different reasons. The, the Camille owners were not interested in buying it, but I still had it in mind because I had worked on this project. And, and we start talking about that. And one person said, oh yeah, that's, that's interesting. We should talk more about it. You should, come, you should come over for lunch with us and we can talk more about it. And that's Friday at lunch. And then that's Friday afternoon, we go visit the vineyards. And basically Saturday morning, they make an offer to buy the domain. And they asked me to, you know, not only be part of it, but also to have my name on it. So I said, well, I don't think this is going to happen very often in my life, so I should think of it twice before I say anything. Oh, I didn't think very long. Uh, yeah, it was. It's, that's how it started. That's how the Wendy Club was created. So it was named Domaine Boucher back then. And uh, Domaine he, was, he was quite a character, though. He produced, yes. he produced films, uh, Orson Welles, Serge Gainsbourg. Belmondo. Uh, Belmondo. Um, was, he, was a, he was a minister. He was a minister of telecommunications under Edgar Faure, you know, in the mid fifties. Yeah, he was. He was a character. Then his son took over, and um, then his son was an architect based in Paris, who was running the domain, but was mostly selling grapes to negos, so was not really interested in continuing the domain. And he was, I don't know, over seventy years old when the same. The sale happened. So anyways, he was looking for someone to sell the domain to. And he, got, he almost sold the domain to a famous estate in Côte de Beaune. And the day they were supposed to close and sign something, everything blew up. So we got lucky and um, thanks to Louis-Michel Ligebeller, actually, who was the broker at the time. And uh, another job for him. And uh, that's, that's how we were able, or they were, my partners were able to purchase Domaine Duchet that then became Domaine de Croix. So <coughs> you do both domains. I mean, you do Camille Giroux and um, Domaine de Croix. I think the last vintage you vinified was 2016 at Giroux. Yes. And then you, you left Giroux to focus on the domain with a brief stint somewhere else, but we'll, 
not talk about that. And um, there we go. So originally at Domaine des Croix, there was fewer vineyards than there are today. Yes. There was only Bone, Savigny, a little bit of Pomar, and Corton Charlemagne, right? Exactly. We started with five hectares, located mostly in Bone, Bone Village, five different Bone Premier Cruz, Savigny les Bone Premier Cru, and then Corton Charlemagne, and a, a tiny bit of Pomar as well, that quickly, quickly disappeared, that we sold in 07. And, okay. And then there was the sale of Adrien Bellon. Yes, I was lucky enough. I mean, I feel very lucky from the beginning in this project, but uh, uh, I was lucky enough to be part of a group of growers, including Rousseau in Gervais, including Meo Camusé in Boulogne-Romanet. It was a, a group of growers who got together and I got lucky to split the Corton vineyards of Domaine Adrien Bellan between Meo Camusé and us. So we acquired Alos Corton Village, Corton Lavigno Saint Grand Cru and Corton Les Grèves Grand Cru. And there was Chambertin, I guess that went to Rousseau. Yes. But he needed more. <laughs> yes, the Chambertin went to Rousseau. Wait, where did the Centenaise go? Um, Girardin was in the deal as well, so I'm sure he got some. I don't know. Actually, there was a piece of Corton Charlemagne. No one knows where it went, or at least I don't. Mm. Uh, I think it was a lease. But uh, the piece of Corton Charlemagne went somewhere to someone, I don't know who. Uh, and yeah, and there were a bunch of growers from Santenay as well who were part of the deal and who were interested, obviously, in buying uh, Santenay vineyards. I actually still have a piece in Santenay that is in Santenay sous la Roche, but it's not planted and it's impossible to plant almost because it's full of murger of stones. It would make it would make a great spot for whites, but it's very difficult now to remove the murger. It's all protected, so it would need a big caterpillar and a lot of work. And uh, I don't think that will ever happen. Um, before we move on, there's one question from Sam like, Hi, Sam. And were you in school with Nicola Gona? Oh, I did, yeah. And why do you know Francois Huret? Uh, actually, when I was in Dijon, I forgot, I should have mentioned François Huret when you asked me earlier. When I was in Dijon, Nicolas Gonin and François Huret were in the promotion after me. Ah. Oh, before me, sorry, before me. Okay, Senior, seniors. Yes. Okay. Um, so, well, I guess let's jump into viticulture. And you are organic, but not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 95% organic, so I'm not organic. Just as a sign of respect for the growers who are certified, I want to make things clear and no, you know, no playing. And I'm 95% convinced about organic, but there are still things that bother me. And the certification is one thing. The, Why? Well, it's a process and it's like, they want to make you go into, okay, you, you have to respect rules. I understand that, but I will give one example of why I don't like the certification. There is, one, there is one herbicide that's yeah. been created, made of canola, that has all the requirements to be used as organic viticulture. And for political reason, it didn't get certified. So if you're certified organic, you cannot use it. I find it interesting. I don't want to till my vineyards all the time. 
if I can find an organic herbicide, in some cases, it can be interesting. So I want to have that freedom to think about what I'm doing and not be say, okay, it's certified. That's all you can do. That's all you are able to do. But again, 95% of the time, I believe in it and I, that's what I do. So far, I'm 100% organic in 2020. It was the same in 2019. Since 2008, I used three times uh, products that were not certified organic. So Was one of those times for the Flavescence Doré? Yes. And you were very adamant about that because... So the, do you know the word in English for Flavescence Doré? No. Well, it's, it's a bug, sort of like the, you know, glasswing sharpshooter. And it, it, it w there was a big fear in Burgundy, and everybody thought it was the next phylloxera. Um, and there's the famous case of Emmanuel Giboulot, who refused to, um, to treat. Uh, but it was compulsory to treat. And the problem was that um, you found that the organic um, treatment was much worse than the chemical one because the spectrum it killed everything so yes. that, that's so it's, it's it's organic but if i would if i could summarize maybe it's going to sound very pretentious but i am trying to be ecological before being organic so for example when there's a wet spring like it was the case in 2016 or 2012 or 2013 if i have to go out on a tractor burning oil and spraying copper every four days it makes me uncomfortable I don't, I don't understand the point of it. I don't see, okay, it's organic, but I just don't get it. So I'd, I'd rather use something that's maybe not organic, but that I find to be more ecological overall. But I mean, I'm sure uh, organic growers would be first at me to say that, but that's, that's, that's how I feel about it. Um, but again, I say that, but 95% of the time, I, it's what I want to do. But there are still things that, for me, cause me trouble or make me think a bit too much. So, yeah. So, namely, compaction of the soil from treating too much, for example. Yeah. And um, spending too much time on your tractor, and especially, we're trying to be very careful. I'm using more and more horses to plow for to avoid compaction. I've doubled the surface this year with horse plowing. How many hectares? It's going to be, uh, today, it's going to be almost uh, to, to one hectare. What's the name of the horse? <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> oh, there are several. There are several. <laughs> okay. Um, and, okay. So, but yeah, so you're nearly organic, but you reserve the right to do what you think is best. Yes. Not, so, in other words, it's not bullshit. It's 95% organic, even though it's called Lutraisonné, which whatever and you know next year or you know maybe next year we, we want to try biodynamic trials so maybe still it, it doesn't make sense to not be fully organic and try biodynamic but we want to try so we're going to try why only now because it takes time for me there are many 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 things that i want to do better before moving to biodynamic uh there, there are you know we worked a lot on guillopusa for example uh, I mean, you know, we will talk about, uh, you know, hedging, no hedging. So th there are things on the plant, really, that we tried and that I thought, for me, was, I don't know if I should say more important, but yeah, in, in my mind, and, you know, your team has to be ready. It's not just a decision you make. Um, it's not just a decision you make. 
your team has to be behind you. It's it's a philosophy more than anything else, I think. So, and you know, and my scientific backgrounds make me, you know, maybe a little uh, cautious about it. So we're gonna try. We're gonna try. Okay, let's talk about this because, you know, it's it's currently popular. Um, this was uh, in 2017. Bon in the Bon Bressand. And okay, so actually, speaking of which, I'd just like to show something to people. So we're in up in Bon Bressand, and you can see the bottoms of the vineyards are very low. If you don't climb up in the vineyards, you rarely see this because you see it from this angle. And the hills seem very soft and not very high, but actually on top of it makes a huge difference. I think this is, no, sorry. I think this, this is your Bressand over here, right? Are we in Sanvigne with Bresson? Yeah, that's it. That's Bresson. Yes, that's Bresson. Okay, so, so from the bottom, you actually don't really realize how high up you are. And these, these altitude vineyards actually do make a difference. That's another view of Bresson with Brenna. Uh, Brenna may be here. Hi, Brenna. Um, but anyway, let's talk about this because this is something you did. You're not doing um but let's i mean i guess canopy management is of the moment so let's talk about it yeah well the the, the thing is with how would we call it arches arches non-hedging for starter non-hedging okay and uh yes the arches what what we know what this for me there's what we know and what we don't know about you know non-hedging and i'm much more interested about what we don't know obviously but we know in theory that you know when you cut the top bud of the plant, the laterals, the secondary buds, they will start growing. So you will have much more green growth or vegetation around the grapes, which is not great for disease and all of that. So that's, that's one thing. Um, we also know that uh, with global warming, with climate change, we are interested in having higher canopy to bring on more shade on the next row. So if you don't hedge, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a positive aspect uh, for that. Uh, we know that if you hedge during flowering, it can have a bad impact on fruit set. So we know what it means or what it does in theory to, to hedge or to not hedge. But what we don't really know, I think, is the impact on the wine because that's what counts at the end. And uh, so we said, okay, we, we, should, we should try that. And I heard lots of things, you know, if you hedge, you have bigger grapes, smaller grapes. So I, I said, I want to do something like precise and try to really see the difference. For me, there is no difference in terms of weight of grapes, weight of clusters. They weigh exactly the same in both, uh, whether it's hedged or not hedged. Uh, the sugar levels, the acidity, the pH, the TA, whatever Enology Lab can analyze, you will find the exact same results, at least on our trials. But there's a huge difference when you taste the wines. So, I mean, huge. Yeah, yeah, there, it depends on the stage of the elevage, but yeah, there is a big difference. So, and for me, I find, I mean, we've tasted together, Paul, I find there's an elegance, a class, a texture, an energy in the non-edged that you don't have with the hedged vineyards. So that's a great positive aspect. Did you, uh, where we at is the fact that it takes a lot of time to do the arches. It takes a lot of people. 
So it costs a lot of money. And uh, I'm not, I'm not going to start complaining. I only make bone and not... Uh, bon Romane. Not, not Bon Romane. Okay. But it, it's, it's something I have to take into account that uh, for me, it's... So I'm, I'm looking for another way to have the same benefits without having the cost. And uh, what we're doing now is we're trying to do hedging, but very late, where basically it would not make a big difference between doing the arches or hedging very late. And, and this is what Thomas does, right? Thomas Boulet in Volney. Exactly. And, and, I, and, I, and I really believe in that, actually. I really believe in that. Okay. It still is, it still is more work than hedging early, but right. it's less, less work than doing the arches. Plus, doing the arches, when you have to prune the next winter, it's not easy to get rid of the arches. I mean, there are some details that, for me, the arches are... Uh, I, I want to find, again, I, I want to find the same results, but doing it differently. So, you went to the late hedging when? What vintage? Well, we started last year. We started last year. Did you make side-by-side -side trials or is everything hedged late? No, everything is hedged late. So we're going to start doing the same trials of vinification of hedged date and... Uh, and arches. Yes. In 20. 20, yes. Okay, cool. Did you ever taste the um, trials at Olivier, Lamy? Like on Derrière Chez Edouard? I don't remember. No, I don't think so. It's, it was pretty... It was pretty impressive, the difference. And at your place too. I mean, it's... And I, th I think the difference is probably more obvious with Pinot than it is with Chardonnay. But that's my feeling. I think, it, to me, it translated more into even more density in, in the core of the wine at, at Olivier's. Uh, less air, like in the Pinot, like at your place, but more verticality. It was pretty incredible. Is there anything else you're doing we haven't talked about? Um, well, but we are now starting as well to grow our own cover crop. You know, for me, tilling, tilling the whole time doesn't make me happy. Uh, it's, of course, with the high density of plantation we have in Burgundy, it's difficult to grow cover crop, but we are trying, we, we, built, we built our own uh, sewer uh, so we can sow ourselves, we can do what we want, and a small size. Mm -hmm. So we're just starting that. But I'm very hopeful we're going to find some alternatives to tilling. Do you, so tilling for env environmental reasons or for no tilling for environmental, I mean... In for agro and agro agro agronomical reason as well. For also for, I don't think it's good for the soil to till it every three, four weeks, when it's the growing season, I mean. Uh, do you I think... think there are phases where it's important. Uh, there are phases where it's important. But uh, for example, at the, at the end of the season, if I could find a, a different solution uh, after flowering is passed, uh, I would be happy to be able to do it differently. Do you think no-till is possible in Burgundy with the vine densities? It will, it's going to work one year, two years, and then your vine is going to start. Or then you're going to have to, you're going to, have to add and spray nitrogen to compensate the, the competition. 
I mean, it's a whole different system, I think. Then. But I don't see it working no-tilling at 10,000 vines per hectare. Mm, I think it's complicated. The Bretts didn't till the center of the row for many, 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 many years. And, but suddenly they, they, you know, with a couple of the warm vintages, there wasn't enough nitrogen in the muss. So they- yeah, so you, have to, you have to compensate at some point. Yeah. So they tailed once again, um, at least in maybe it was 19, um, because it, it was just affecting the, the muss with the warm vintages. Yeah, and if, if because I make these choices, then I have to add nitrogen uh, later on. What's the, what's the point? I, I'd rather get it from the, from the soil. So I'm tasting the 17s. You're tasting the same 17s. I have, we both have three of them. Uh, the Savigny Les Premiers Cru, enfin, Premiers Cru, Les Peuillets. The Bone Tuvillain, which was the first vintage, was 17. And Corton, La Vigno Saint. Um, I chose the wines and I actually chose three 17s I had not yet had in bottle. I've had um, Pertuiseau. I haven't had, there are a few more I haven't had yet in bottle. <clears throat> we tend to hide the wines, um, not at our house. So, which is a good thing. But the bad thing is that it takes me, I can't, you know, sometimes they just go away and I can't taste them immediately. So. I've had um, Pertuiseau, I've had Bonne Bressande and Sanvigne and Bonne Grève, um, and they've all been spectacular. I wanted to try um, three wines that I haven't had um, in bottle. And um, first of all, you started a change in 15 to change some of your vinification practices. And but I don't think that 15 or 16 could really demonstrate them. Yeah, because the impact of the vintage is very strong with these vintages. So you, yes. you see the vintage first. And yes, exactly. And first of all, 17, I know you're madly in love with it. I'm madly in love with it. I wish I had this every year. Um, but it's, yes, it's the first vintage where you can really see the delicacy, the air. So do you want to talk a little bit before we talk about the terroirs and specifically about Bone and Alos, two of the most popular terroirs in Burgundy, as we well know. Um, do you want to talk about the last few years of evolution? Because it's pretty dramatic. Yes, actually, it started a bit with 14 as well. But um, I think there, there are two evolutions. There's one evolution in the vineyard, because we took over the vineyards in 05, but I realized it really takes you five to more even 10 years to put the vineyards back in shape or where you want them to be, I think, to, ha to have them at your hand. So uh, at the beginning, the first few years, the vigor dropped. We started plowing again we, when we took over the vineyards. So there was some changing in the viticulture that affected the plant. And, uh, and obviously the, the, the grapes and the taste of the grapes. So for me, if I, if I summarize the evolution is I'm trying to make wines that are less, uh, 
because the bigger dropped and maybe because of my choices of vinification, uh, I guess I was, I don't know, trying to prove something to someone or to, to myself. I, you know, it's, the most difficult part is to not do too much. And I used in the past to do too much. I couldn't stop. I said, okay, if I don't do a pump over, I'm going to have to do a punch down. And if I don't do a punch down, I'm going to do two pump overs. And <laughs> you, you keep going like that. So I think now that the vineyards are in good shape, I hope, I can be more gentle in terms of vinification, uh, I think. So that's, that's the first evolution. Uh, there's, there's less extraction in the wines. There's a better, better balance in the food because the vines are in better shape. And we have also changed the, which is the only product we're using to make wine, sulfur. We've changed the sulfur regimen as well. So where I used to be very traditional using one liter per ton of sulfur, like a lot of people do, uh, when the food comes in, I'm now at either, uh, so one liter per ton means five grams per hectoliter. I'm now at one gram or I'm at zero. So as long as the fruit is clean and healthy, I think adding sulfur at the beginning is, I mean, that's what they teach you at school, but it's completely useless. If you manage to handle the beginning of fermentation, if you don't let it go, you know, vinegar or whatever, but if the fermentation starts quickly. So for that reason, I'm not really a big fan of cold soak because you know, when you do cold soak, usually it means you have to add quite a bit of sulfur to prevent the fermentation from starting. And so my, Changes were in 14, reduce the sulfur a lot or even stop using sulfur, get the fermentation started right away. Do you use um, with a starter or just? No, just. No? What, what, I, what I do now is that I add one gram on the first cubes that come in just to do a little yeast selection. So I add a little bit of sulfur, one or two grams, one gram most of the time. So then the first cuvee that come in that will take longer to get started are a little bit protected and there's the yeast selection as well because of the sulfur and once they get going we use those vats to inoculate the food that's coming in later on. So it's not exactly a pied cuve because you don't start it ahead of time but it's this, a similar principle in a way. In a way. Yeah. I should, I should work on doing a pied cuve. Okay. So, so very little to no sulfur at harvest. Yes. Um, of course, no, maybe not of course. Natural yeast fermentation, ambient yeast fermentations. Natural yeast fermentation, yes. Yep. I've never used. And, and in the winery, I think the, the winery that we're in at Domaine des Croix, there never was a bag of commercial yeast that came in. So I, I'm pretty sure the native yeasts are... Really native. Yes. Um, okay, so extraction regime. I don't want to talk about infusion um, because I don't think it's the right word. I don't know actually what to say. It's, it's really based on tasting. So I taste twice a day and I decide, but what is sure is that I do less than I used to in the past. In the past, what was it? Pijage twice a day, pijage once a day? Three times a day. But you know, in 19, in 19, I went back to three times a day because that's how I felt about doing it. So I can't wait to taste soon. Now we have the right to now. But for me, pigeage doesn't mean extraction. That's why I don't like that word extraction either. Uh, if you take, well, if you take 
good care of your grapes when they come in. If you don't squeeze them, if you don't break the seeds, you can do 10 punch down a day, you will not get any harshness. You will not get any harsh tannins. But if you break your seeds, if you process your fruit through a pump and you crush everything, you can do one punch down and one pump over and you're gonna have tannins all the way here. So for us, the main concern is, you know, we have small bins. Uh, we are very careful with how we treat the grapes before they arrive at the winery. Then obviously sorting table, distemmer or no distemmer, because I'm using more and more stems as well. That's another evolution. Yep. Uh, even though I, I didn't really like stems when I started, now my tastes have changed. So I'm using more and more stems. Um, but yeah, maybe a bit, Less, less punch down in general, except in 19. And, uh, and then it goes, uh, it goes straight to barrels. It goes straight to barrels. And if the mallow happens, it doesn't mean we're gonna add sulfur either. So I'm really now doing sulfur based on tasting more than based on the life of the wine, where you know, usually if it's beginning of fermentation, you add sulfur. If it's end of the mallow lactic fermentation, it's a stage of the life of the wine where you want to add sulfur, or that's what we were taught. Now I really do it based on tastings. So I take a few risks towards Britannomyces and things like that. But for me, the wine, and, and I learned also one thing with sulfur. When you add sulfur at the beginning, the wine calls for it during elevation. It's like it gets used to it and it needs more. When you don't use sulfur at the beginning, the wine can hold by itself with no sulfur for almost the entire elevation. And I only add some prior to bottling. And I like that. But again, that works only if you have clean, healthy fruit. And we've been lucky since the 14 vintage to get very clean and healthy fruit. So I don't know how I will do if we get back to botrytis era. Um, well, good. They'll be called rainy vintages. So <laughs> we want cool vintages. Um, has your, so total at bottling, Today is what? Like maybe not 18, but 17 or 19 will be. 18. I can tell you I have the numbers of 18 in mind. I'm, I am between 25 and 30 of free sulfur mm -hmm. and 40 of total. Wait, that's a lot of free for, to for not yeah, a lot it of. Is. It is, that's, that's what happens when you use little sulfur and you have healthy grapes, it, it, it doesn't combine a lot of sulfur, so you have, you, what's left is a lot of free sulfur. Okay. So it's low total sulfur. I mean, it's perfectly reasonable in today's standards. Yeah, so the, the, average, the average analysis for the reds are 25, 40, 45. 25, free, 40, 45 total. Mm. Max. Okay. Have you, so you mentioned whole cluster? Mm-hmm. Is there now whole cluster in every cuvee? No. Depends? Depends. Depends on my mood sometimes. <laughs> it depends on, uh, on uh, and, you know, there are terroirs where I'm, like for example, Bresson, I never use stems in Bresson and I use stems in 19 because I want to try. Mm. But for me, that, that, that chalky, that sense of minerality from the Grèsleté you have in Bresson would not match with stems. That was my idea. But I said, if I want to make sure it's the right idea, I have to try it. So I try with a bit of stems in Bresson. But in general, Bresson doesn't get stems. I, I tend to use stems in terroir that are um, 
either very clayish, like if it's a white soil, which I don't really have, but white soil, lots of limestone, I would not do stems. If it's more red soil and more clay, I would have a higher proportion of stems. And then it depends on the vintage as well. The riper the vintage, the more proportion of stems, but it also depends on the level, level of ripeness of the stems, which is, I've rarely seen ripe stems in Burgundy, to be honest. Uh, so we use them anyway, uh, but ripe lignified stems in Burgundy is very rare. Okay. Does it also depend on the genetic material? Yes, it does. Okay. Um, have you changed anything to your oak use? I would like to. I would like to change, especially on the, the first wines, like Bone, Bone Sauvignon, the very delicate wines. I would like to go for bigger barrels or even Fudo. My dream is to age in Fudo. I want to have a better oak. I'm not using a lot of new oak. But I still find notes of oak in my wines that sometimes I would like I would like them to disappear. And for me, the solution is not especially to use very old barrels, but to use bigger barrels, as long as you don't have too much structure in the wines. Because if you have more structure, then the wine needs the breathing of a smaller barrel. Mm. I, I would love to make Bon Village in food if if I was making enough. But so there was part of the problem is the the small crops that you've had specifically in bone um okay um what bugs you about the taste of oak is it more aromatic i mean about oak is it more the aromatic thing or is it more the sweetness of the um, the toast in you both. both both okay uh i mean again i don't think my wine tastes oaky but i find sometimes some sweetness that i would like to that's that's my goal is to find a way to go with either bigger barrels or but it's also difficult to work with older barrels for Pinot, I think, for reds. Uh, how, how well some people don't think so. So how old are your barrels? The oldest ones are ten years old. Well that's that's pretty venerable. I mean it's not Lafarge old, but it's it's not young. <laughs> I guess it's the average old. Okay. Um, okay, so, um, okay, so you said you don't use a lot of new oak, so are there- 15% in average. 15, 1.5 in average. One five, yeah. That's not a lot. Um, what does it go up to? It goes up to 25% with Corton Red. It starts at zero with Bourgogne. It's like 5% with Bon Village. It's 10% with Sauvignon, and it's 15, 20% for most of the producers. Okay, so let's talk terroir and let me share something. No, share screen. Okay, so So I didn't know you had Santenay, so I've only kept... Yeah, but again, it's, it's not planted and it no, probably never will be, so... So the, the bulk, I mean, the, the biggest number of vineyards are in Bone, which we'll go visit. You have one in Savigny, in Les Perriers, which is just around here, which we'll go visit. But let's start with 
actually, there are your vineyards. Um, let's start with Alos quickly. I guess, you know what? No, we're drinking wine. So let's start with Savigny. So you have something interesting going on here because you have two vineyards, Les Peuillets. Well, you also have some village vineyards around here too, but in the, in the Premier Cruise, you have Les Peuillets in Savigny and Les Sanvigny in Bonne, which are on a similar category of terroir. Yes. Uh, they are the mouth of this valley, and it's a big one, um, which we live up the valley, by the way. Um, and so it's in the mouth of what we call a new alluvial fan. And basically, the vineyards are, and I'll show Sanvigne especially, um, basically the vineyards are on this. So they are on unconsolidated material, which means um, not bedrock, but gravel, um, big gravel, small gravel, sometimes as big as Galet Roulet. And that's what the vines go into. On top of it, there's some clay and there's variations to this, but anytime you're at the, on an alluvial fan, there are wines with great roundness and not a lot of mineral definition. Would you agree with that? I completely agree. It makes, it makes very spheric wines in a sense. Uh, it's, um, for me, when I taste the grapes in Sanvigne, I always get that sense, you know, you, you taste the wine, you taste that, you taste the grapes, you taste exactly the same. They are not, you know, sometimes when you taste grapes before harvest, when you try to determine when to pick, it's sometimes hard to chew. It's sometimes the pips are, you know, green. And with Sauvignon, it's always pretty. It's always nice to taste. Even, even ten, almost like I would say five, ten days before harvest, it still is. Uh, so so it's, it's, it, it's, it translates in the wine. It's, it's always a bit like that. Uh, it has that, that touch, that texture that's very, there's no, there's no, there are no hard edges in, in Sauvignon, never. And, and I mean, to be honest, uh, not so long ago, I used to hate wines on those terroirs. Um, I found them too round, too soft, no length, no verticality. I guess my exposure to Van de Soif natural wine over the last decade um, made me start to really, really love these wines that are completely gorgeous and fruit-driven. Um, they're not serious. The hierarchy of Burgundy is not built... There are no great vineyards at the mouths of or on alluvial fans. Um, there are no Grand Cru's. There are no mega serious Premier Cru's. I don't think. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm probably wrong. But in general, that's the truth. And even yourself, I remember for a while, for a long time, you tried to make Sanvigny into something else than it was. You tried everything to give it definition. And it's, it's the day you didn't that I really started to like that wine. That's, that's, that's what I was saying you know, earlier. The, the most difficult part when you make wine is to learn to not do anything. Uh, because uh, I, was, I was trying to make it in a way that 
doesn't suit him. You know, it's just that's not the way Sawin is meant to be. So I shouldn't fight against that. Uh, Sawin, will, even though I have to say that when I first started making Sawin and the Sawin we're making today have changed a lot uh, because the vines have changed because I'm using a higher proportion of stems. And I think the stems help a lot in Sawin to give him definition and to give him length. And uh, yeah, so, but basically it's an absolutely magnificent guzzler. I mean, it's a gorgeous van de Soif. So is the bone, even more delicate and pretty. <coughs> Strangely, and this is what we're drinking, there's more, it's, the Perrier is more linear. And it's slightly different. The soil, according to Francoise, the soil's deeper. I guess there's a, bit of silt. there's a bit of silt that you don't have in Sauvignon as well. And also you said, and this is where you're a big believer that genetic material is as important as terroir. And you said the vines are, are I guess, are pretty old and there's virus. Yes. And there's stress. So that may add tension too. I believe that's where it's coming from. And so even though it's on the same soil, that tension makes it a slightly more serious wine for me. Yeah, it's, it's more linear than something for sure. Yeah. But it's the same, it's the same bedrock, it's the same alluvial fan. Yeah. Um, so you, we only put two down, but you actually have four parcels of yes. Sauvignon, which are directly downslope from your Bresson, which we'll go visit in a sec. And, and actually, actually the, the bottom part of Sauvignon is alluvial fan, and the upper part of Sauvignon is Grèzelité. Is Grèzelité. So um, let's go look at Bresson. Bresson um, is very high on the slope. It is a very steep vineyard, um, and you're like completely on top of it. It's also planted on dévers, which means the rows are going this way, but there's slope here, so it's very hard to work, and you have to work it by a horse because it's too dangerous. By a horse because it's too dangerous. Um, and yeah, and under it is a very specific and weird terroir, which we'll also find in Bonne Grève, which is called Grèzelité. And let me pull up. Um, Francoise's, well, that's, well, that'll do. Um, sorry, having a little trouble navigating this. Bresson, here we go. So here is the profile of Bresson done by geologist Francoise Vanier. And you're also in gravel, but, but, not the same kind. but not the same kind. You want to explain it? Well, it's basically fragmented limestone mixed with clay. Uh, it's a limestone that comes from the top of the hill that was fragmented through the glacier era. And um, it's, it's what's at the bottom. And what's, what's on top is uh, the soil, which is the degradation of those grèzelité. And for me, those grèzelité, if you combine it with the altitude of Bresson and the exposition of Bresson, which is east-facing and not southeast, gives it a very distinct 
finish and texture in terms of uh, I, I like to call it sometimes quite muscular it's it's a uh, it's a uh, it's not chalkiness it's a sense of a drying feeling that you have at the end that really brings length to the wine and for me that's typical of the of both the Grasdite and the fact that we are at a higher altitude. So there's a, there's a sense of coldness as well in that character. Yeah, it's almost like a white wine finish. To me, it's yeah. always very fresh, it's triangular, it's all, even if the wine's black, it's always red. Um, it's super bright, it's very, very mineral, and there's a physical explanation for that. There's a lot of um, calcareous, um, I'm sorry, calcium carbonate precipitations because of the size of the gravel, I guess, the roots can't really go down into it. So um, it's so calcareous. And, and yes, with the altitude, it's probably the most aggressively mineral wine you have in bone in a really great way. I agree. And bone is often thought to be nice and round but the more you dig into it and the more this is absolutely not the case there are a lot of vineyards with huge personality and Bresson has probably got one of the biggest personalities in bone it 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 also was a wine that you struggled with for a while and most people do struggle with Bresson it's got a wild a wild side that's um once you it's actually become I mean, I've, my allegiance to bones in your cellar have changed over the years. I, for the longest time, I was a Pertrizo man. <laughs> but I have to say now, you know, if I was forced to pick one, I'd probably go for Bresson, right, at, in the last two or three or four vintages. I absolutely love it. Uh, I feel the same. I feel the same. You know, I used to have Greve and Pertrizo above, yep. but now Bresson is climbing up. Yep, it's, it's, it's remarkable. And the strange thing is that you have Bonne Grève here. And well, first of all, um, I've often heard you say that this part of Bonne, so Bonne Grève, Léteron, the top of Léteron, and Lécra to you is probably the most qualitative area in Bonne. I think the Girous believe that too. Um, they have a confidential vineyard in Lecra, uh, which is absolutely insane. Your second to last vintage, the 15, is mind-boggling. Um, I think we st stocked away quite a bit in the company cellar, and maybe it's time for us to all reward ourselves after a rough season and, and pop one. I know you had some. It was your, your parting gift from Giroud. Um, but yeah, it's an insane bit. The the bottom less so, right? Le Bas de Terron. Yeah. Le Bas de is not where we are in Terron, unfortunately, but that's the, 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 the heart of Terron is above and it's towards Cra. For me, they are like the tête de cuvée of Bone today. If, if I had to choose, it's Grève, Terron, Cra. It's really in that area. And so um, there is, <coughs> this is less known, but um, in the in the um, in the group of vineyards that should be Grand Cru's that are not in the Côte de Bonne, there is Merceau Perrier, Pomar Rougien, Vonnecaire, and a lot of people do also mention Bonne Grève. You don't believe in it specifically because you don't think the bottom bottom is great enough, or why? 
it's it's a big Kumikru. Uh, it's over 30 hectares, but it's large. So maybe the, the heart of it, where baby Jesus is from Bouchard, maybe deserves Grand Cru, but I'm not sure all of Greve. I'm just not for the reclassification system in general. I, I just yeah. think that, uh, and I'm not saying that Perrier doesn't deserve to be Grand Cru, but I think it's, it's, it's a little complicated today to come back to that. Or if we do that and we want to have credibility, we should say, oh, then maybe some part of Corton should be Ados Corton Premier Cru. But if we start doing that, it's never going to happen, obviously. <laughs> so it should go both ways, is what you're saying. Yeah, if we want to be credible, I, that's, 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 my, that's my opinion. So in general, I'm not for the idea of doing a, classification, a new classification of Grand Cru. We know what they are. We know that Clos Saint-Jacques, Les Amoureuses, I mean, we know which one they are and they should be Grand Cru. Then in terms of quality, should Greve be Grand Cru, considered Grand Cru? I, I don't know, actually. I don't know. Some, some parts of Greve, maybe. Maybe. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I don't know what to say. <laughs> I'm sharing this picture because we're standing here in your Greve. But with right, arches. What? With arches. With arches. That was 17 again. Um, and... Also, right above here, these two little bits, I believe, are Lafarge's um, Bon yeah, Rêve. Exactly. With the little bit that was um, uh, ripped up and replanted recently. So, Greve is on the same terroir as Bresson, but it's a completely, completely different wine. Would you care to... For me, it's another great example to show that not every difference in wine comes from the soil. Uh, because, yeah, it's quite similar. Uh, Grèce um, in terms of soil and subsoil. But different exposition. Here we're back to southeast, whereas Bresson is facing east. Much higher altitude in Bresson compared to Bonnegrève, and a different genetic material. So there's more, Grève is always more tender. It's always, um, it, it doesn't have the, the intensity of minerality that Bresson has. So for me, the Grèce character shows less in Grève than it does in Bresson. Exactly. It's, it's a darker wine, it's a richer wine, it's a, maybe it's more of a winter wine, more of a Labrador bearskin fireplace, you know. And I, I, always have, uh, I always have high pH in Bonne Grève. I always have that sense of roundness. So it, it's, it's somewhere between it's more complex than Sanvigne, but it, it has a bit of the character of Sanvigne in some vintages. And, uh, but it, I find it closer to Sanvigne than it is to Bresson, but with more seriousness than Sanvigne, with uh, less prettiness. But it's... Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, okay. Sorry, I thought you said, yeah, totally. Yeah, it's more like Sanvigne than it is like Bresson. But you know, the, top of, the top part of Sanvigny is on Grasvite as well, so... Go figure. But it's, it's a big, beautiful, very dark wine and a food wine. Um, and even though Bresson is more structured and probably more aggressive, I could actually drink the Bresson totally on its own and get happily beat up by the minerality without food because um, that's what I like. Um, whereas... Greve, because of the higher pH, I think I would need to sit down, have a meal, um, you know, sit with it. Greve, Greve can get a bit more 
tiring at some point. You know, it has a côté, it, it, it's uh, showing a lot. Bresson is always more restrained uh, because yeah. of the melody. When, yeah. when Lev is like uh, more sexy. It's the shy kid, but Bresson's the shy kid at the back of the class when they're teenagers and they'll turn out really well in the future or commit suicide, but um, it's kind of more, more interesting to me young because of that, that, that structure. Um, let's quickly share a little more about Bone. So um, you do have some Tehran, but it's the Bade Tehran, so it goes in your village. And your village... Yeah, in, 19, in 19, for the first time, it will come separately. Really? I went 100% whole cluster, no sulfur, and... Uh, you know, I always, I always said, I always believed that he was the bad kid, you know, in the group. I was not happy when I was in the vineyard. I said, the clusters are too big. It's a small parcel. It's not the best spot in Toronto. It's the very, it's the bottom of the bottom of Toronto. So I'm like, it should go in Bon Village. And now that the viticulture has evolved and the plant have changed, I said in 19, it looked really great. Uh, I want to vinify it separately. So I have two barrels of Bon 100% whole cluster in 19. Is it a pop-up or are you going to do it again? I'm going to do it again, for sure. Oh, cool. Okay. So. Uh, um, I just want to add to everybody um, that's with us, thank you. I see a few raised hands and I'm sorry, I'm old. I have no idea how to go see what a raised hand means. So if you have a question, please ask it in the chat. And I, it's much easier for me. Peter just, Wasserman just raised his hand. Thank you, bro. Um, don't post your question in the chat. There's a better chance I'll see it. Um, okay, let's go look at the end of bone. So south of bone. Towards Pomar, here's the Pomar border. It's not a shitty neighborhood. You've got Les Vignes-Franches, you've got Le Clos des Mouches, you've got Les Aigros, um, but you have two obscure ones, fairly <laughs> obscure ones. Um, Pertuiseau and a brand new wine for you, Les Tuvillains. Yes, we, we started with Tuvillain in 16, but because of the frost and the mildew in 16, we didn't make any Tuvillain in 16. So 17 is really the first vintage. Uh, well, first I should, start with, I should start with the name because Tuvina means uh, such a, <laughs> it's, it's unusual to get such a name for a vineyard in Burgundy. So basically it means kill, kill the ugly. So the, the, the ugly ones, the poor people were probably killing themselves at working these vineyards. That's, that's the explanation I found. Uh, so it's, it's quite unusual for a name of a lady in Burgundy to have a Tuvina. But anyways, it's a vineyard we took over in 16. Um, the vines are between 70 and 80 years old, farmed organically for a long time before us. Uh, it's clearly not the best position on the slope in Bone. Uh, if you look, you are at the bottom. So it's rather, I haven't done the soil profile yet, but uh, it's something I have to do. But So I don't know precisely the type of soil, but I can tell it's, it's a dark brown clayish soil and that's probably quite deep and so it, it tends to make wines that are rather a bit square there's a sense of uh, 
the, the tannins can be a bit a bit sharp, a bit square. I don't know. I, I think it doesn't show in the 17 because the, the the vintage is so pretty overall that the wines doesn't doesn't show that, but it shows it more in 18 and 19. Okay, the 17 is gorgeous. I mean, it's. It's got more core than Sanvigne. I mean, there's definitely more of a spine to it, but it's very soft, it's very resolved, it's very melded into the wine. In a way, it's softer than the Perrier, even though it's not on alluvial soil. It's, um, and it's not as uh, dense and, and it's slightly less tannic than Pertuiseau. I think it's a pretty great intermediary between Sanvigne and, say, maybe Perrier. Um, it's um, um I like it a lot. It's 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 almost glue glue, almost not glue glue, in a way. At least the seventeen. It's half it's half glue glue. It's half glue glue. Um, and so then you have um, Pertuiseau. Yes. Which 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 for me when we started the domain, I mean, I had already tasted Bon Sanvin, Bon Grève, Bon Bresson. I had never heard of Pertuiseau. So I was very curious and it's, it's probably one of the vineyards I prefer because it's one of the vineyards where I like to be the most. It's, there's just a good feeling in that vineyard. Uh, we have two parcels. One is older, is uh, around um, 55 years old. One is around 35. So uh, it's, it's a small premier cru. There are very few producers who make Pertuiseau. And when people describe bone wines being, you know, pretty, nice, easy, I think uh, when you taste Pertuiseau, that's really not what it is. No. Uh, and um, actually, um, it's got a specific, um, let me, uh, how do I get rid of this? I'm going to need some classes in Pertuiseau. Uh, uh, um Ah, it has only 55 centimeters of soil and then you hit extremely hard limestone, right? Yes. Um, like super dense and, um, but I mean, anyway, for a long, long time, it was one of my favorite wines in the cellar. And, um, and unfortunately, I mean, to be totally honest, it's in the south of Bone, which got super hit by hail for many years. And you have super old vines in there. And it slightly stressed them. And 17 is the first vintage where I'm like, wow, it's back. I agree. It's uh, really the area that suffered the most from the hail in 12, 13, and 14. So the, the vine really was stressed. And uh, in 16, with the frost, I mean, it was really tough for the vines to get back on its feet. Yeah, and because it, it had one of the prettiest tannic definitions in your cellar always, and really the kind of thing that, you know, makes, um, you know, that really makes uh, the whole thing that bone is pretty a total lie, especially, you know, in, in vineyards like this. Um, it got slightly muddled for, for two or three vintages and 17 is just really back and it's absolutely a stunning, stunning, stunning 17. Um, I've been, let's, before we move to Corton, um, let's ask a couple questions. 
Um, IC would like to know why is the pH higher in Grev? I have no idea. It's okay. just it's just a fact. Every year, every year the pH for Grev is higher than Bresson and almost as high as Sanvin. Uh, and I don't know. I, I think it's the genetic material, or maybe the rootstock. That's that's my only guess. But you have fairly vine, young vines in Bresson, I think. No. Yeah, thirty between thirty and thirty-five years old. The vines are older in Grève. Grève, they are fifty years old. Better selection in one or the other? Do you know? Well, in Bresson, it's the regular clones, you know, planted on SO4 or 161.49. It's uh, 113, 114.115, the three usual clones that were planted back then, which are not the worst ones. So I'm, I'm quite happy with them. Whereas in, uh, in, uh, in Grève, it's a massive selection. And it's lots of small berries, lots of small clusters. Uh, it's, it's a... Except for seven rows where we have another selection and it's bigger, bigger berries and bigger cluster. So it's a bit, uh, there's, a, there's diversity, but overall, most of the grab has really good genetic material. Um, there are a few questions that are interesting and one that's, that's very great. And um, um, there's a comment from Diana Lewis, who just said Pertrizo was Ned Benedict's favorite wine from Domaine des Croix is actually Ned's birthday today. It is. It is. So happy birthday, Ned. Yeah. Um, actually, it's Beaver saying that from, I guess, Diana Lewis. Di his, yeah. Cheers to Ned Benedict. Um, anyway, um, he had good taste. Bertrizo was also for many, many, many years my favorite wine. Um, there's a super geeky question from Sam Ehrlich, which is, um, how would you compare the Tuvilin to the Pointe de Tuvilin? <laughs> because that ends up in your village. And then we'll jump to Corton. I find Pointe de Tuvilin to be a bit more, uh, it's, it's probably deeper, deeper soils in Pointe de Tuvilin with small underneath that I know for sure. Mm. And the, the quality of the tannins in Tuvilin is better than in Point de Tuvilin. There's a certain, uh, I don't like the word rusticity, but that's what it is. I think that you have in Point de Tuvilin that you don't have in Premier Cru Tuvilin. So deeper soils in Point de Tuvilin. Okay. Let's go talk about Corton. Another one of the most. Did you know what you were doing? When you chose Corton and uh, <laughs> and Bone as as your flagship uh, villages, do you just like to suffer or or yeah, I like to suffer? Yeah, that's for sure. No, I mean at the same time, Bone vineyards and Corton vineyards are still or were still affordable. Mm. Uh, I mean, Corton is by far the most affordable Grand Cru, and Bone, I mean for. Half of the price of a Meursault village, you get the Bonne Premier Cru. And it's, it's pretty remarkable, too, that a group of American investors would go for more modest appellations than the Prestige, because in the beginning, you, did, you had Corton Charlemagne, but you didn't even have the Corton Red. So no. 
it's it's pretty remarkable that they weren't after you know either whites whites in Merso or or Preligny or or reds in the Côte de Nuit. But for me, the decision was easy. It's when I saw the vines. Uh, when I saw the vines and the genetic material they, they, they had in Corton de and Corton de I said, it can be anywhere. It could have been in Haute-Côte. I would have said, we need, if we can, we need to buy these vineyards. Because for me, first thing I look when I visit vineyards for sale is the quality of the genetic material because it makes such a huge difference, uh, obviously. Uh, so when I saw those two vineyards, I said, you know, Vigno Saint-Grève, I, I mean, I was really amazed about the quality of the, of the small clusters, small berries, really Pinot Fin. Okay. Really Pinot Fin. So, Boutière. Yes. Bottom of the slope. I think, I don't think I've ever seen soil that red to the point where it's orange. Um, it's really, really iron rich. <clears throat> and very deep, very, very deep, lots of clay. A few meters, a few meters of clay. And so you did some drainage work on it, right? Yeah, because when you have lots of clay like that, uh, it's flat. I remember the first vintages where, especially when it rained in the spring of 12 or the spring of 13 vintages, I mean, we were going in the vineyards, we had to spray with atomizer, you know, with the backpack, not the tractor couldn't get in. I was with my boots, I would lose my boots in the mud. I mean, I was like, this is not going to work uh, because of the clay and the, and the water. So we decided to drain the, the, the vineyard. Mm. But without, usually when you drain the vineyard, you pull it off, you drain and then you replant. But there are old vines there and I didn't want to lose them. So I did an experiment an expensive experiment, but I said, we're just going to pull off three rows on one side, then pull off a few vines parallel, and we're going to put drains like that and keep, so we kept 75% of the vines. We only had to get rid of 25%, and we managed to install a drainage system with an old vine in place. Mm. That was what year? That was 2015. Well, you haven't had any water since, so. <laughs> oh, but we still see the difference because, you know, in the past, even after 20 millimeters of rain, you would go at the bottom of the parcel and you would see, like, the, the water that was still there was, was not infiltrating at all. Whereas now we don't see that anymore. So, has there been an evolution in the wine or? I find the wines to be more elegant. You know, Corton, I would not put Alos Corton and Elegance together in general. Mm. Uh, Corton makes wines that are solid, that are... Uh, and Man, manly. Locker, locker room wines. <laughs> <laughs> and I find, I find that the wines are, are prettier today than they were. I don't know if it's coming from the viticulture or if it's coming from the drainage, but that's, that's my feeling. Well, I can't wait to pull one or taste the the recent vintages. Um, taste the nineteen. Taste the nineteen. Oh yes, I will. We're not talking about nineteens though. Um, Corton Charlemagne. You yes. have two parcels. You're in 
Le Charlemagne, in the historical bit of um, the Appalachian, um, you're on top of the slope. You are where it faces southwest already, or? Yes. Yep. Um, west, west, west to southwest. West to southwest. Um, tell us more. Well, it's a, it's a unique site, really. Uh, just when you walk, I mean, it's pretty steep. There's 20% 20 slope. Uh, and the soil is almost yellow. It's like, we, we say white marl, but it's almost a yellow marl. Uh, it's it's marl that has a texture of a silt. It's, I mean, you, you know when you see the land and the soil that you're going to make wine with lots of character. It, it just shows uh, right away. Uh, of course, with the west-southwest facing, we have to be careful in terms of ripeness. Uh, because it gets ripe very quickly. So that, that's been a challenge for me for a few years. I feel like now we are doing better at, at that, at uh, the, the picking day, because it was really like one day difference was, ma was making a major difference. Really? Because of the night sun? Yes. Huh. Okay. And because of the fact that it's, even though it's a, it's a rather young vine, it's 30 years old, it has virus, it has so... Lots of small clusters, small berries. They turn gold very quickly. They become very ripe very quickly. So aromatically, they can become like, you know, go towards pineapple, something very sweet, very yellow fruit. Even if the, the fruit is still a, is only 12, 12 or 12 and a half percent alcohol potential. So yeah. I, never pick, I never pick Charlemagne at very high uh, degrees. Uh, I mean, it's 13, 13.4 at the most, but most of the time it's between 12 and a half and 13. Okay. Do you um, crush before you press? Depends on the vintage. When it's a hot, ripe vintage, when I know there is naturally more phenols in the skin, I will not crush because I know I will easily extract more phenols. If it's, uh, but overall, I love crushing with white wines. That's, Something I learned. Uh, it's uh, it's for me with Chardonnay crushing makes a big difference. It, I I believe so too. It it uh... and 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 I think uh, I mean if we talk about premox that could be a good topic because I think uh, by by being very gentle in pressing we don't get enough phenols to protect the juice and in the end uh, that can create problems. But so yeah we crush I would say like we didn't we did we didn't crush in 19, we, we did crush in 17, uh, we did crush in 18 as well, even though it was ripe. Uh, so I, I'm still finding my, you know, finding my way for that. But yeah, I crush most of the time. Hmm. Um, no sulfur on the... No. Press? Neither? Okay. No, no, no. No sulfur, and then it goes straight in... Uh, 350 liters barrels. Okay. Same, uh, same sulfur regime, you wait if you can? Yes, yes. Okay. Uh, I, you know what? I need to pop one of the recent vintages. I'm thinking that, um, I'm thinking that the team needs to get together and have an apéro in Bonn. We'll invite you and pop some uh, Corton Charlemagne.
and or I can invite you and you have it here straight at the source done um, and so lastly the two cartons so I'm we're both currently so you have Corton Lavigno Saint and Corton Grève, which are not that different as far as terroir is concerned, but different as far as position on the slope and very different as far as exposition. Yes. Um, I have become such a fan of Corton Lavigno Saint. I forget what was the first vintage. Um, what? Oh, nine. No, the first vintage where it really stuck in my head as um, a crazy wine um, is very unusual for Corton. It's very focused. It's a very feminine Corton. It's tight to the point that you have the feeling you're drinking a towel that you took on both ends and, you know, compressed and compressed. It's extremely linear. Is very bright. Is very savory. Um, I, I I just find it's a spectacular um, wine. I like to call that that side of the hill for Pinot is the 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 polite. It yeah, makes, it makes polite carton. Shy, uh, polite, but but with incredible depth. Yes. So polite in the sense that you don't have any, you know, people, I just keep hearing all the time, oh, but Corton is too tannic, it's too, it's too mean, it takes 20 years. No, if you get that side of Corton, you don't make Corton this way. It's not, it's not the way it is, I think. Uh, there's lots of energy, lots of length. Yeah. But there's no hard edges. It's, it's always very integrated, very... Um, I yeah, I mean... I was surprised when I was first making it, and, I, and I'm making it with a lot of whole cluster as well. It's beautiful. It's very savory. There's really this this um, savory umami quality to the fruit. It's redder. Um, it's slightly colder, I think. Um, at least it, it that's the way it comes across. Um, it's a beautiful, beautiful wine. Um, probably not the one that gets the bigger scores, I guess. No. No, but um, it's extremely intriguing. I mean, it's the f I've I haven't I can't say I've had too many cortons from that side recently. Um, I mean, obviously there's um, Bono du Martres, but I don't know. Strikes me as more corton than 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 La Vignosa. Um Is there anything about the genetic material, or it's just spectacular? No. We are working. We are working on our massal selection at the moment, mm. doing our own, and I think most of it is going to come from Corton Lavignosa. I mean, it's like textbook Pinot Fin when you go at harvest. The savory quality. It's like Galeran when you taste La Croisette, or um, even though it's a younger selection, his La Justice. Uh -huh. There's an element that's not fruit to. To Pinot fan that goes into and there's a depth there's a depth of flavors that's very unique I think yeah yeah it's it's really it's really spectacular how much whole cluster in seventeen sixty percent you don't even notice it no um how much was there in Perrier twenty percent you noticed it more in Perrier aromatically at uh, when I first 
tasted the two wines. It's very funny. But it's it's true with every you know as you get to greater terroir, it absorbs whole cluster in general. Very, I mean, you can do whatever you want. You can do hundred percent. Sometimes you don't you don't taste it. I'm not speaking for Corton, but for great terroir in general, there are so many great examples of you know wines made with hundred percent where you don't even you don't even taste it. And then you have Corton Grève. Yes. So same bedrock. It's what we call the Corton limestone. Mm-hmm. A different exposition, much more stony, uh, lots of rocks that are either shy or are not. But I, I read Francoise's report, it, it, she says we have shy in Cartonville. I know, we looked for some one day and we never found them. Yeah. And, um, but it's right above Les Chaillots, so it should be. Yes. And they, it's, it's, it's warmer, even though it's southeast facing compared to southwest for Vignosin. There's so many more stones on the ground that it's it's warmer. You get you get higher level of ripeness compared to to the Vignosin. So there's more freshness and delicacy in in, some, in Vignosin. There's more uh, darkness, a bit more, and and it's more. It looks more like what people expect from Corton to be when you taste Corton there. It has that dry extract. It has that 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 power that you find. More on the area of Corton Grenard, Corton Bresson, and Corton Clodiora. Hmm. And you're pretty familiar with Corton because that was a thing at Giroux. Mm-hmm. Okay, I think we've been on for an hour and a half, which is longer than what we usually do. So we'll stop boring people. Um, thank you so much. Thank you, Paul.